Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. It didn't seem real at the time. You know, it was like everything. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's just, it's a weird feeling comes over you. It's like, how did I get to this point? with my life where it's like, okay, kill or be killed now. The US has the world's highest prison population per capita. Heavy sentences for drug crimes, widespread gang violence, and the prevalence of gun ownership are some of the reasons the incarceration number in the US is so high. But poverty, poor education, and a very high rate of reoffending are the underlying causes. The introduction of the crime bill and the three strikes law in 1994 saw the number of people being sentenced and the length of their sentences skyrocket. A semi-privatized prison system and a lack of political will compound the problem. Not only are there too many people going to prison and for too long, it's very hard for many convicts to break the cycle of offending and reoffending. This isn't through want of trying. Few inmates want to go back to jail. And there are government programs, NGOs and charities, established to help rehabilitate former prisoners and provide them with a new life once released. But the success rates are poor. Projects are underfunded, they're focused on the local rather than national, and staff are rarely trained in the wide range of skills really needed to make a difference. Ultimately, ex-cons are being ignored. But when there's an incredible 70 million people in America that hold a criminal record, that's a huge demographic of people that are not able to contribute economically or socially to society. And the personal cost of these individuals is devastating. A private business set up by a former convict plans to change that by bringing modern technology, joined up thinking and a community for the formerly incarcerated, giving them the tools they need to become valued members of society. It's easy to dismiss these people as criminals who are suffering from the consequences of their actions. But as I learned about their stories, of wayward families, of poverty, of addiction and of hopelessness, I realised that it's too easy just to blame them. The system is broken, and a few small changes could affect the lives of millions for the better. In this episode of Defiance, I speak to three former prisoners about the challenges of reintegrating into society and what needs to be done bring millions of people back in from the cold. I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is Locked Out for Defiance. Today, the American criminal justice system holds almost 2.3 million people. The prison population per capita remained pretty consistent through the first 90 years of the 20th century until the 1994 Crime Bill that included the Three Strikes Law and the Sentencing Reform Act. Prison populations since then have leapt up over 400%. Today, according to the FBI's Interstate Identification Index, there are over 70 million people in America with a criminal record. 
That's 21% of the total US population. Out of a working age population of 155 million, that's an incredible 45%. The US prison system is in desperate need of reform. Many prisoners come from poor backgrounds and environments where education is a luxury. Role models and mentors are few and far between, as are opportunities for anything other than minimum wage jobs. Drugs and crime surround them, and as one former gang member told me, offers a glamorous alternative to a dead-end job. Following into a similar life of drugs, guns and crime is often the only option they can see available to them. With few after-school social or sports programs available, many young people from poor inner-city areas will spend years in and out of jail. One in three Americans will be arrested in their youth. If you're black, it's 50-50 whether you will end up in jail by the age of 23. America's prison industrial complex isn't run with the prisoners in mind, and rehabilitation is not a priority. Instead of giving prisoners the tools to become active members of society when they're released, they're ignored and thrown right back into the dangerous environments they left. This means that there's an incredibly high rate of recidivism, meaning those released from jail will end up back in jail. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, at least one in four people who go to jail will be arrested again within the same year. And it's no surprise that most often it's those dealing with poverty, mental illness and substance use disorders who are re-arrested. And sadly, those problems only worsen with incarceration. So why do we care? The economic cost of having over a third of the working population unemployed or underemployed because of their criminal past runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars not just in prison, legal and policing costs, but lost income and tax revenues. Recidivism doesn't only eat up tax dollars that could be spent elsewhere, but it means more crime, more victims, and neighbourhoods remain dangerous, and of course the likelihood that the next generation will also fall into that same cycle. Finding work with a criminal record is difficult, too difficult. It should be easier. On most job application forms, potential employees are asked if they've ever been arrested. Not charged, just arrested. And 86% of businesses say they do criminal background checks on their potential employers. According to the Justice Department, a criminal conviction will reduce the likelihood of a job offer by at least 50%. Those numbers are significantly higher if the candidate is black. And the stigma of a criminal record doesn't just limit chances of finding work but finding somewhere to live, legal representation, getting access to healthcare, or simply the right to vote. It's far more complicated than it is for those without a record. So why isn't something done about it? Why isn't prison reform at the top of any government's list? Bringing down the numbers that are sent to prison, establishing steps to stop them reoffending, retraining and re-educating. Well, for one, there's little appetite for politicians to support prisoners and prison reform, With a stretched economy, voters would rather see their tax dollars going to schools rather than prisons. And politicians at both local and national level are under pressure from the powerful lobbying groups which support the prison industrial complex. Where prisons are the major employer in some small towns, shareholders of these businesses, or the businesses that benefit from the low-cost labour prisoners provide, have a loud voice. But one organisation has emerged as an alternative to the government-run programmes that are too often failing the recently released 
The Commissary Club is a social network for ex-cons, a place where people can find jobs, get access to medical treatment, legal or financial aid, and get support from a network of people who have been through similar experiences, to share and to support each other, and to find or act as a role model for others. The Commissary Club is the brainchild of ex-con Richard Bronson, who worked alongside the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belford, at Stratton Oakmont in the 1990s. A firm whose roots are so deeply embedded into Wall Street that our very founders sailed over on the Mayflower and chiseled the name Stratton Oakmont right into Plymouth fucking rock. You got it? <laughs> Bronson served 22 months for securities fraud in the early 2000s. A stout, fast-talking 60-something, his time in jail didn't strip him of his Wall Street roots, his ambition, or his entrepreneurial flair. I am from New York, and I worked on Wall Street for a number of years, working at some large investment banks. And at a certain point, I actually um, began working at a small brokerage firm called Stratton Oakmont. Stratton Oakmont uh, is the firm that was memorialized and lives in infamy by the film Wolf of Wall Street by Morton Scorsese. Uh, I eventually became a partner there as well. So I was very, very much involved with all that was happening there, all of the insanity and the shenanigans that were going on. I left there to move to South Florida, where a partner and I launched our own financial services firm. And that was launched, um, you know, using the Stratton Oakmont uh, model, if you will. So our business was very, very similar. And we grew that into a very large company. We were doing about $100 million a year in revenue. We had about 500 employees. So it really grew. And I was making a great deal of money, as you could imagine. Uh, And I was leading a, I have to say, a glamorous life. Um, unfortunately, we were breaking some laws along the way. And while I'd very much like to be able to tell you that I had my reasons for doing it or that it was a mistake, a case of mistaken identity, the truth of it is far more banal. It was because I was greedy and stupid and I knew what I was doing was wrong. I have no excuses. And, uh, despite having paid everybody back, nonetheless, I was guilty and deserving of being punished. So I lost everything. Uh, I lost my considerable net worth. I lost my freedom when I was sent away to prison for a few years. And when I came out of prison, uh, I had less than nothing. And in fact, I was homeless and destitute. Seeing a huge gap in the market, Bronson founded an organization called 70 Million Jobs to place recently released prisoners and those with criminal records into work. But as COVID led many of the thousands of workers the organisation had placed to being laid off, he pivoted the company in November 2020 to what is now called the Commissary Club. The rate of unemployment among people who have done time exceeds 50%. And unemployment correlates directly with recidivism, recidivism being that someone will return to prison or jail having been released. And in this country, it is almost 75% or three out of four people will return to jail or prison. And, you know, and they don't recidivate just once. 
on average, they recidivate four or five times. And, you know, needless to say, you know, so, so you can make an argument, okay, somebody made a mistake, they were young, they were stupid, they, you know, did their time, and now they're ready to get on with their life. Would that that were true. When people are rearrested, there are other people involved. There's families, typically. You know, there are kids who go without their father, you know, for extended periods of time. And worse, that's their role model, you know, that dad, you know, spends his time in prison. And that's probably where I'm going to end up spending my time. You know, families are decimated. Communities are stripped bare. In the United States, you go to a place like Chicago, a big city, you know, in certain neighborhoods, you won't see a 20-year-old, you know, male walking around because they're all in jail. The, the economic cost of, of recidivism is probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars per person, you know, and you think about how much money is being spent on an entirely broken system. For many of the criminals who are caught up in the prison industrial complex, it's a cycle that is hard to break out from. Much larger problem if you're black. Those most likely to end up serving time are those who are the poorest, the marginalized and the least educated. Communities who live in social housing or projects as they're known are surrounded by gang violence, drug use and alcoholism. There's little time for education or youth programs and there's often a lack of role models. For those who think they have little chance or little opportunity, following in the footsteps of their elders into gangs, drugs and crime is often the quickest way to putting food on the table or having any level of success. My name is Sean, and um, I grew up in Baltimore City, East Baltimore. My mother, she took care of me and my brother the best way she could. And um, unfortunately, um, it was just certain things that she wasn't able to provide. She um, did the best she could with the resources that she had. Um, but I said again, for me, it was like, okay, I wanted a certain type of clothes certain type of shoes and, you know, buying my clothes from Sears. It, it just, it just wasn't cutting anymore. That's, that's basically just summing up in a nutshell. And once I realized that she wasn't able to provide those things for me anymore, um, it was more so, okay, how can I get these things for myself? And that's when my life pretty much started to change. You become attracted to a certain lifestyle I had one guy in particular, I won't say his name out of privacy for him and his family. I can recall being on the blacktop one day. Um, blacktop is, you know, where guys play basketball. And it was the clothes he had on. And I noticed while we were out there playing basketball, um, certain females had, were sitting outside on the steps, had went back in the house and came back outside Well a whole different wardrobe on. You know, he had the gold chains, um, the gazelle sunglasses, the velour sweatsuit, the four-finger rings. And I looked at him, he was older than me, and I looked at myself, and I said, hold up. Today, you know, I never said it to him, and I never said it to anybody else, but I was saying to myself at that time, it's like, did they really just go in the house and change their clothes because they knew he was outside? And I knew they didn't do it for anybody else, because this guy, you know, he had a reputation around where we were staying at that time. 
And I looked at him and I looked at myself again and I said to myself, I don't care how I got to get it. I want what he got. Victor Lombard, who goes by the name Divine, was another. Uh, yeah, my name's Divine. Um, I was I was um born and raised in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, you know, this small small city in the smallest state of the Union. Um, grew up middle class. Mother always worked. Unfortunately, during the eighties, early eighties, crack epidemic. Um, she became addicted to crack cocaine, um, affected my life, abruptly took me from a middle-class upbringing to being thrust into the projects and poverty. From that point on, I really didn't have, you know, my mother in my life as far as motherhood goes. I knew who my father was, but he was never really involved in my life. So I took to, took to uh, the streets and selling drugs was the only resource I had to survive. I started selling drugs around 13 years old. Um, I became really, really uh, proficient at it, which led to um, my ultimate incarceration in federal prison by, by 19 years old. And I went away for, for seven years, 84 months. And that experience basically really like directed my life in a way that would lead to me dealing with the, the negative psychological cycle of recidivism. Because as soon as I was released, I got back into doing the same exact things. And, you know, so I, I dealt with recidivism for about 20 to 30 years. And for many, that's the cycle they're stuck in. Released, unemployed, poor, desperate. And so they revert to the only thing they know. If you can't get a job, you need to get money somehow. And if you're, you know, if you have a family, of course, you're going to do whatever it takes to put food on the table. But even if you're a young guy and you can't get a job, what are you going to do? You know, you have to get money. And if the only avenue that's available to you um, is to break the law again, that's what you do. So that's what's that's the state of affairs. It's a sorry state of affairs. The United States has 4% of the world's population, and yet it has 25% of its incarcerated population. The United States is the only country in the world, and I include other lovely places like China and North Korea and Afghanistan and wherever, we're the only ones who put juveniles in solitary confinement, which is a sure path towards someone just going nuts. You know, we're really awful. So there's certainly a lot of work that has to be done with prison reform. Our prison population exploded in the uh, 1980s, really, 70s and 80s, when the, the war against drugs became the thing. And that was really fueled by the introduction of crack, which is a historically a drug that's taken by you know, people of color living in disadvantaged social environments. You know, college kids do coke. You know, people in the ghetto do crack. And, you know, there was a wide disparity of, of, of just sentencing, you know, based upon those two drugs, which were essentially very similar drugs, obviously, that were, it was inherently racist along the way. 
but we saw a huge in, influx of, of the population. And then we had these things called three strikes, you're out. So the third time you're arrested, doesn't matter what it is, they're going to throw the book at you. So you could have, you know, you could have done a couple of bad things and then, you know, you get caught with, you know, a half an ounce of pot and that could result in a 30 year prison sentence. Ultimately, the, the slice of, of criminal justice that we work in and how we would be put out of business is if politicians, you know, and it used to be politicians would never want to appear soft on crime. So they didn't have that cover to be progressive regarding criminal justice reform. So prison sentencing certainly needs reform. Prison conditions. I was in one a federal prison, which wasn't really bad, but I was also in a place in New York City called Rikers Island, which is perhaps the most evil location on the earth. It is a place that is just pregnant with violence and, and bad intent all around you, where the guards are corrupt and sadistic and the inmates, you know, are... Half of them have mental health issues and half of them are addicts and half of them have been in and out of this jail, you know, on a never ending basis and have nothing to lose. And it is ugly and disgusting. And, you know, it's just parents don't let your kids go there. Sean Dupree was 19 when he was selling drugs as part of a gang, and a territorial dispute led him into a conflict with a rival. I had went to this guy's house, you know, um, and, and spoke with him, talked to him for a good while, you know, um, and I thought everything was smoothed over, you know, but um, as time went on, you know, when certain people were around, he was saying little things out the way towards me, and he, he threatened me. Mm. You know, like I say, they came into the picture, and unfortunately, um, he lost his life in the process. It didn't seem real at the time. You know, it was like everything. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's just it's a weird feeling comes over you. It's like, how did I get to this point with my life where it's like, okay, kill or be killed now? But um than previously arrested before, but this was the first time that I actually was sentenced to a long period of time. The judge had sentenced me to uh, 50 years, you know, for second degree murder and use of a handgun commission of felony. So, um, uh, to be honest with you, again, it didn't seem real at the time. You know, it's like, 50 years, it's like, come on, you serious? It, does, it didn't, doesn't register. That, it didn't register at that time. Like I said, you're talking to somebody that was uh, 20 going into the system, and it's like, you know, 50 years, okay. And it's like, this guy deal with the best way I knew how. You know, um, like I said, I just, just really didn't seem real to me at that time. You know, I don't think the time really hit me until it was years until I was in my sentence. When 10 years go past, 15 years go past, and it's like, hold up. You know, you see so many guys coming and going, but yet you're still here. And that's when the time really started to hit me. 
many of the educational programs that were open to prisoners were cut as part of the 1994 crime bill, leading to only a small handful of prisons offering prisoners any secondary education today. The Federal Bureau of Prisons says that they do offer education to acquire literacy and marketable skills so they can obtain employment after release. But the uptake is low, and the programs rarely make it to those with longer sentences. When I went into federal prison, there were the Pell Grants. You had access to the Pell Grants, so they would pay for your pay for your um your schooling and stuff like that. Like there were ACE courses, adult continuing education courses that were ran by inmates, stuff like that. That um you know I would take advantage of those things, but really for the most part it was all up to you know what what I decided to do with my time. Um, eventually Pell Grants were pulled, and and uh, you know a lot of people who um who were learning remotely in prison, you know, going to college remotely, weren't able to go any longer. Wouldn't you want inmates to do this? I was taking um, a college course at one time, but I think they had stopped funding for that because people on the outside were complaining about us getting free education while they had to pay for it on the outside. So they shut that program down. Every day that one of our people don't have a job, they are at risk of being rearrested. So we kind of see our work on a certain level to be the emergency room at a hospital that we've got to address this immediately, you know, and get them off the street, so to speak, and get them some income because some income is better than none. And generally, it's easier to find a job when you have one versus starting from scratch. But because they have such few, so few options, if they get a job, they recognize that there may not be another alternative, you know, another job waiting for them. So they are loath to do anything that's going to jeopardize that position. And in fact, even if it's a crummy job, they, they're happy that they got, they got that. And they come to work with a smile on their face. They're not resentful. You know, I got this miserable job working in the meatpacking plant. They're happy that they got that, you know. And, you know, if you went on 10 interviews and every one of them, they slammed the door in your face. If you get a job, you're going to you're going to make the most of it and you're not going to screw it up. And that ends up rubbing off on the rest of the workforce. So they're a very, very positive influence. And we hear that all the time. But what do we expect people to do? who come out of jail or prison, who can't get a job. It's not because they don't try. It's not because they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They try. Trust me. They go on 100 interviews. But because of their record, they are summarily dismissed and can't get a job. Or the only job they can get is just about the worst thing you could imagine. And, you know... And then we're surprised that they need to find alternative means to put food on the table and not even just buy a pack of cigarettes, go out and have a drink, whatever they just to lead a normal life. So what could be done instead of spending $200,000 for each person who keeps breaking the law again and again, if you spent a small fraction on them, teaching them something, teaching them how to write code, teaching them how to go on a construction site in this country, there is a lack of truck drivers who have the right license. It's called the CDL license. Hundreds of thousands of jobs are available. Now, driving a truck isn't the most glamorous job, 
but you can make fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and it's your business, and it's it's better than working at McDonald's for minimum wage. Train these people to do that. You know, it, it, it to me, it's very, very obvious. The main thing I've struggled with is trying to find steady employment. Um, you know, I went on job interviews where the HR said, man, you know, you should be sitting on this side of the desk. But because of your situation, we can't touch it. You know, um, and I think one of the things that I struggled with uh, was dealing with bouts depression. Mm. Um you know, because you, you would have a family, but you can't provide for them the way that you would want to. You know, um, I can recall me and um, Mrs. at the time, um, we had to send the kids to um, other uh, relatives just so they would have something to eat. Oh. You know, um, because again, not being in a situation to be able to take care of yourself and uh, the people that you cared about. Sean has tried all kinds of jobs. Operator, uh, worked for um, trash removal, um, like waste management or public services. Um, I moved first. But even when he managed to find a job, keeping it wasn't easy. I had a supervisor. He accused me of stealing something. Mm. And he said, oh, you know, I got the police here. And I was like, I know that I didn't do it. You know, but for somebody that had that much influence and over my control, where all he has to do is pick up a phone and accuse me of that, that was that was horrifying for me. You know, um, because I said, oh, convicted felon, you know, the nature of the offense to charge, you know, and all the tickets for one person to get on the phone and accuse me of this, and everything I work for is gone. Wow. So uh, be first to admit, it's, it's been rough, but... um. Things are working itself. I just got to believe that whole one is that. Did you ever consider uh, reverting to crime again because you couldn't get a job? Um, no, that's, that's, it was a guy in there. And I said, I, I remember his name. I'm not going to say it, but it was something he told me. If I don't remember nothing else, he said that, um, you know, when you out here, you have a choice to make. He said, I know sometimes you might find yourself in certain situations, but you have a choice to entertain it or walk away. You know, he said, but just keep in mind, once you back behind this wall, if you're behind this wall, there are no more choices. You have to deal with it. And I, I try to keep that in the front of my mind while I'm out here. It's more so, okay, um, I've had situations where I've had run in with people. Um, and it's like their life is not worth my life today. You know, just walk away. You know, I know pride, ego sometimes get in the way, but it's like, just walk away. And I just, you know, I don't know why I got all the time that I did, but it, it was a lesson that I had to learn while I was in there, you know, because who knows where I would have been um, if I was still living that life when I was still a teenager. You know, I might have been a drug addict um, or might have ended up dead myself. Sean talks a lot about his battles with depression and the psychological impact of his time in jail. One of the things that I dealt with um, that I still deal with since I've been out is the, the dreams. You know, dreams, but I mean, you know, constantly in my dreams, still 
being incarcerated. Mm. You know, you wake up and you look around like, okay, I'm in my room. But, you know, it's it's a, a weird feeling that to be out here as long as I have to still be entertaining those type of dreams. You know, um, being deprived of a good night's sleep. You know, you got constantly worry about, okay, if the guards hit my door, you know, um, if somebody plotting to run up in myself mm. and I had to defend myself while you're in there, you know, the only thing you got to worry about is just surviving. Mm. But out here, it's no more uh, free meals, a place to sleep. Um, you have to pay for your water bill. You have to pay for electricity. You have to pay for food. So I had to readjust myself to not being dependent on the state, the system, so to speak, but become dependent on myself. And it, it, it took me a while to readjust. For Divine, his circle of release, offend and return eventually came to an end. So you were committing crimes and reoffending, but what eventually changed? It was it was actually me becoming a hundred percent dissatisfied. I've been taught that no change occurs until you're one hundred percent dissatisfied, or it, it was something dynamic has to happen in your life to really shift you from 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 one mode of living to another. And for me, it was just being hundred percent dissatisfied. I knew I was much more intelligent than just being incarcerated and living a criminal lifestyle. I knew that. And because I knew that to my core, I started figuring out how do I solve this problem for myself? How do I break free from this, this, neg- this negative psychological cycle of going in and out of prison? How do I break free from living um, a criminal lifestyle, engaging in illegal activity and being embedded in crime culture? How do I free myself from that? This has been a challenge for me because I've been doing this since I was 13 years old as a means of survival. So in my mind, I never really looked at it. I was doing something wrong or was doing something negative. I really didn't look long term about the consequences it would have on myself, my son, my relationship or relationships, my family. I never really thought about all that. All I knew that I had to eat. I had to survive. I needed uh, clothing, food and shelter. How do I obtain those things? Drugs was a means to do that. Crime culture was a means to do that. Whilst in jail, Divine didn't feel he was given any help to prepare him for his life outside of the institution. Like I was familiar with, you know, the SBA. I was familiar with with with, with SCORE and, and things of that nature where they have executives that help you and guide you. And I tried those avenues in the past with, with, with little success. Instead, when he was released, he looked up the venture capitalist megastar, Ben Horowitz, on Twitter and they bonded over a shared love of hip-hop. A friendship and mentorship helped Divine, who has since become a recording artist, an entrepreneur, and a member of the Commissary Club team. Divine, Ben Horowitz, venture capitalist. My experience early on, my childhood, being in the projects, being impoverished, gave me that fortitude, that grit, that, that determination, that ambition, that... um that desire to achieve, that a desire to win, um, you know, that determination, if you would, and that resilience. You know, I'm, next thing I know, I'm, in, I'm being flown to Silicon Valley. Um, I'm, in, I'm, in this, I'm in this network. I'm connecting with people. I'm meeting people. Um, I'm, on the, I'm on the technology community radar, you know, really in entrepreneurship and in startup building, which, 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 which for me was the next 
next thing for me to do, the next logical thing for me to do was to start building my own startup. And so I started thinking about Black. And Black is the acronym that stands for Build on Leverage, Acquiring Knowledge. And it was more so, Black is more so a process than it is anything else. It's not, it's not racial, it's not ethnic. Um, it's a process. The ideation of Black was more so just um, financial and economic empowerment, financial literacy first and foremost. It was something that I, that I lacked. And I, I've seen a lot, a lot of money in my day. And I look back at how much money passed through my hands and I made on a regular basis. It made no sense for me to, first of all, be, be poor still. And it definitely, definitely made me think if I had financial literacy and knew how to invest that money, budget, save, whatever it was. And if I had those, those type of disciplines, I would, I would have been positioned more well off than I was. So I started thinking about that. And I thought about everybody from my community and my background that suffered the same thing. And then I said, the social impact component has to be financial literacy. And once you become financially literate, the next best step to that of for financial and economic empowerment would be entrepreneurship. Divine was lucky to have a mentor in Ben who could provide a positive influence and guide him to help him achieve his goals. When I was in the projects, when I was impoverished, I mean, my role model, I really had no real positive role models in my life. My father wasn't present in my life. So um, I took to the streets and the only individuals in the streets were, were people that were doing negativity. And that kind of and that kind of led me down the same pathway. Had I had mentorship, I had positive mentorship or positive role models in my life, I know it would have took me in another direction. Finding mentors for the newly released is something Richard has ensured as a key focus of the Commissary Club, because reintegrating into society can sometimes be daunting and is not without its emotional and physical challenges. I'm still learning how to use a phone, still trying to learn how to use a computer. You know, um, they've helped me um, look for those jobs. Um, you know, I believe in certain things that are in place, but we're not really pointing in that direction. You know, um, met my mentor through the commissary club. Yeah. You know, he, he he's from New York, you know, and he's, me and him, we, we clicked. It was just like a lot of things in common. Um certain goals, certain interests, the same goals, certain same interests. And um, like I said, it's been a pleasant experience. He's, 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 he's helped me a lot. I think the most important thing he's done for me as of right now is just having, lending the air to listen. Mm. Because um, I think a lot of times out here, unless a person has been in that experience, they can sympathize, but they never be able to relate to what it is that someone's incarcerated has been through. It's definitely been a humbling experience being back out there. So many things you took for granted while you were gone. You know, just being able to open the front door. You know, if I want to stand with the refrigerator open, the door open for a hour, trying to figure out what I want to eat instead of somebody telling me what to eat. Mm. You know, these are things I think about now. Um, being able to sleep on a real mattress. It's just definitely been a humbling experience. I talk with Sean about whether this is a top-down problem, something the government needs to fix, or whether it's a societal problem and attitudes need to change from the bottom up. An individual will first have to want to change their self 
we need positive uh, reinforcements. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of hard when, like I said, again, you got so much stuff to worry about. Like I said, you know, take it back to your youth. You, you go to school hungry. You got to worry about fighting. You got to worry about getting robbed, shot. It, 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 it has to be an alternative to that. The easy thing to do is just to disregard and throw people away. You know, instead of actually trying to figure out what is what is the problem, we could hire more law enforcement, but it's not stopping crime. You know, we got people out here, um, every day you come to news, um, unfortunately in the States, somebody's getting robbed, shot and killed. So obviously that's not uh, uh, really the, the, the solving thing. It's like, okay, what is going on in people's lives where they feel like they have to live this way? Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, it would take uh, a time and a real concerted effort to try to figure out what's wrong. It, it is simple, simple fixes. However, they they don't they don't take that course of action, and and, it, and it's mainly due to prison being, um, you know, being a money machine. You know, and 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 the product is humans in this regard. So you know, we look at the Thirteenth Amendment. Slavery is still legal in, in the sense of you if you're a criminal, right? You you can go to prison and 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 work for slave wages. I mean, I was working in federal prison at twelve cents an hour, twelve cents an hour. I worked for that inside federal prison. I did eventually get into um, the in, in, the industry piece of it called Unicor, and, and where I was making a hundred dollars a month, and I lived off that because I had no family members sending me money. I lived off a hundred dollars a month. You know, it, it was it was a struggle. But, you know, I made, it, I made it work. But I was in the industry in the Unicor, and we actually were creating products for the private sector. You know, Victoria's Secret and a whole bunch of slew of other companies, major companies that, you, that you're very familiar with their brand brands that prisoners made their products. A lot of these p- politicians are stakeholders in some of these companies that actually provide products to the prison. So, you know, they're, they're privy to getting those contracts and, you know, all that under under table dealings, man. That should be actually illegal and outlawed. But they but they do it, right? It's part of being a politician, right? You get those perks of being able to undermine your own citizens. If people really took the time to uh, invest in people, I believe a lot of things would change. But again, it's like, okay, just paint everything with a broad brush. It's, it's really unfortunate because like I said, it's, it's a lot of good people out here. They just in bad situations. For me, it's just to be the best version of myself. Um, learn as much as I can, you know, um, be a better um, father, a better son a better husband just just want to be the best that I know that I can be you know I'm not really sure where life is going to take me but I know as long as I keep putting my best foot forward you know the sky's the limit one thing I learned is that when you give up on yourself that's when life really is over This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles 
and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank Richard Bronson and the team at the Commissary Club, and Divine and Sean for taking the time to talk to me so candidly. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. <laughs>